Hi, and thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Montramani hosted on July 28, 2021 with Charlene Wheelis. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Great. So thanks, everybody, for joining. I am uh, thrilled to be back with you after a couple weeks of summer vacation. Uh, I also am absolutely excited to have Charlene Wheelis with me today. Uh, Charlene's a, a person I've gotten to know over the last few years, uh, an amazing woman, and she's got an amazing story to share. Uh, but before we turn to Charlene and uh, her story and her book, etc., cetera, uh, again, a quick recap of prior guests I've had uh, and the replays that are available. Um, we had Kevin Zinger, uh, who was talking about 3D printing of vehicles and how he could dematerialize the manufacturing footprint of America and really change uh, the future of manufacturing. I mean, his analogy was that manufacturing today is basically an analog business and he's gonna digitize it. Um, and, uh, you know, really interesting story about artificial intelligence, machine learning, dematerialization, efficiency, and high performance. So uh, that is a uh, replay that's available. Before that, I had uh, Diane Hessen. Diane is a columnist for the Boston Globe. Her new book was called Our Common Ground. And she spent years, years and years and years, I think five or six years, talking to 500 voters from around America and listening to them. And what she realized was despite the political polarization that captures the headlines, in reality, there was enormous common ground that was just being obfuscated by these extremes that are getting most of the attention. Uh, so we had a great conversation and that I encourage everyone to listen to. Um, before that, I had Hakeem and Rushan, uh, a husband and wife team that uh, were really focused on the Uyghur issue in Western China uh, or East Turkestan as they refer to it. Um, and this was perhaps one of the more powerful interviews I've had because it really showed uh, the personal side of the Uyghur genocide that's taking place. And, uh, you know, it showed a side of the Chinese Communist Party that I don't think is as well understood as it should be. Um, that replay is available. Uh, before that, I had Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn is a Time 100 most influential people, person in the world, uh, wrote a book called False Alarm. Not a climate denier, as some people accuse him to be. He's fully on board that the climate is changing. He just thinks how we deal with that and what we do about it matters and that we have scarce resources. So let's focus in the right way. Uh, a, a very thought-provoking conversation. Grant Williams, uh, a dear friend who I've known for almost a decade, uh, talked about uh, the economy uh, and what's happening in the financial markets and what it all means, uh, as well as sort of new media. For that, I had Chad Foster. Uh, Chad uh, went blind at the age of 20. And so unlike people who were born blind and don't know what the world might look like, Chad had to adapt to a world that was different than the one he knew. Um, and he talked about that resilience and that sort of ability to step through it and, uh, and find purpose and, and have passion and meaning in what he was doing. Um, and I began this summer series, if you will, with Mike Rogers, a former congressman, former chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And Mike actually talked a little bit about technology standards and specifically 5G and what was happening with Huawei and the US, et cetera. Uh, and he was, he was the individual who ran around the world and convinced the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada to not use 5G equipment from Chinese manufactured companies such as Huawei. Um, and he says there's real security and vulnerability risks there. And so that was a really fascinating conversation. And of course, have to end with the advertisement, so to say. <laughs> Think for yourself, my book's still available, still on Amazon, still everywhere. And if you haven't gotten it, I'd really encourage you to do so. So uh, that advertising done now. Charlene, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me, Vikram. It's nice to see you. Yeah. Uh, it's been years since we were actually in person together in Boston at an event. It has. That uh, I think back then the roles were a little reversed in the sense that you introduced me. <laughs> yes, I did. I did. And then we found we had so much in common. And you, I think you were headed off to meet with one of my competitors at the time when you finished with us. So... Um, but again, thank you for speaking to the Page Society, which is really a fantastic organization. And we felt so honored to, um, to have, have had you. You were a great catch for us. 
Perfect. Well, thank you. I, uh, and you're right. I think at the time you were at Bechtel. Um, yes. Yes. Um, in fact, perhaps the country's leading or largest engineering and construction mm -hmm. company. Uh, and I, at the time, was helping some folks at Kiwit. <laughs> so right, exactly. right, exactly. But, but, but collaborative competitors, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Competimates, we call it, right? <laughs> so, uh, Charlene, I was going to introduce you as this impressive woman who rose through the ranks of numerous companies, but I think actually I'd like I'd rather have you introduce yourself in your own language and your own terms and sort of give us your quick bio. Sure, sure. So, you know, I'm a recovering C-suite executive, as I like to say. Um, I've spent uh, 30 years, 33 years in corporate uh, up until uh, January of 2020, right before the pandemic, before we even knew that was happening. Uh, I left the corporate world. I am technically, I guess, retired from corporate. Um, to pursue a, a whole new path. So give you kind of the Reader's Digest version. I was raised by a single mother, um, the, uh, you know, little black girl in Oakland, California, not a whole lot expected of you. We moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and um, still not much expected. I went to college because my best friend went to college and I didn't know what else to do. We were young when we graduated from high school. We were 16 when we graduated from high school. And uh, so I had no idea. And, and her parents expected her to go to college. So I said, well, Kelly's going to college. I'm going to college. And um, and that just kind of started the whole thing. I, um, I got a degree in journalism. Thought I was going to be a teacher, and um, but I took a journalism course, and it was, as I say, love at first letter. And um, when I finished undergrad, I came out uh, to the Washington, D.C. area, uh, got a job with a very large company, and um, that's when I realized that life would not be easy climbing the corporate ladder as a Black female executive um, or Black female, period. And um, I have steadily uh, climbed through the ranks to reach the height of my career. And then I got there as a principal vice president, you know, global company, $40 billion in annual revenue. And I thought, wow, this is it. And then I got cancer. And um, after I had cancer and I, you know, the smoke cleared from a journey that was supposed to be seven months that ended up being four years. You know, I looked up and I didn't know who I was anymore. And I didn't fit into the life I'd spent 30 years building. So I just had to recreate my world. And so that kind of brings me to today, just really realizing that in that journey, it's more important for me to share the lessons I've learned than to continue climbing that ladder, you know, plus it was hard. <laughs> it was not, you know, it was really hard. <laughs> so. But, but not just a successful career climbing uh, executive that you've been, Charlene, you're also a mother. I am. I am. I have um, two wonderful daughters. Uh, one uh, is the oldest is 27 and she's in LA. She's working for Reddit. So she is living the ideal, yep. you know, uh, millennial life. Right. <laughs> and then I have my Gen Z daughter who's 25, who um, is um, finishing up an accounting degree and planning to be um, a CPA. I have no idea where she gets that from. Must be my husband. Yep. <laughs> <Right>? yep. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. So now I just have, you know, little fur babies around the house, but I'm very proud of my daughters. Yeah. So one of my favorite parts about your background um, is that you spent a little bit of time, was it cheerleading? Yes, yes. So I was a, um, I, well, I've been a cheerleader my entire life. So I started cheerleading literally when I was um, 12 years old or so, 11 or 12, and, um, and cheered all the way through um, middle school, high school, college, uh, joined an adult cheerleading team. And then I also cheered for the, um, the Washington football team for four years, which was known as the Washington Redskins at that time. And so I never thought I would be an NFL cheerleader, yep. but, um, but you know, I, it was, I think it was in my genes. I think I was just meant to do it. Well, it's part of the, I think, uh, the, the, the part about your background that I think is so wonderful, Charlie, is that you do what 
comes to you, right? It's sort of, if it's pretty much, <laughs> right. But there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to interpret it. I find it amazing and, and really empowering and inspiring actually. So um, yeah, it's been fun. You know, it's, I'm been one of those people when um, someone says, where do you see yourself in five years? You know, and my answer is always like, I don't know. Yep. <laughs> you know, how do I know what's going to fall out of the sky? And that's, that's, you know, my husband says I'm a better offer girl, you know, because I kind of wait and just see what happens and then takes the best of what makes sense to me at the time. But yeah, it's made for an interesting life. Yeah. Well, that's the value of the process, right? Sort of following, <laughs> having your own journey, right? Enjoying right. the journey rather than so many people actually focus on this destination mm-hmm. that they don't enjoy the journey. And that sort of, I think right. the, sort of this constant nagging sort of sense of unfulfilled nature of life. Mm-hmm. Sort of. So, um, all right. So you decided to write this wonderful book, which I really enjoyed. So thank you, Charlene, for writing it. Uh, and for those listening, uh, it is definitely a book worth getting and reading. It's called You Are Enough, Reclaiming Your Career and Your Life with Purpose, Passion, and Unapologetic Authenticity. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really uh, a great read. And actually, there's points where I was in tears. There's points where I was laughing and sort of it took me on this wonderful journey. So I really <laughs> enjoyed it. But Let's begin with a simple question, Charlie. Why'd you write it? I had to. Okay. I, um, you know, as I said, I had um, I had breast cancer. I had stage two breast cancer, uh, and I went through the traditional treatment, which is your surgery, you have body parts cut off, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, and then it's supposed to be done. Um, but when I came out of all of that, which was seven months, and I I did not work during that time. Um, which was great. Uh, and quite frankly, I didn't work that time because my uh, breast surgeon sat, said to me, I've seen your stressful life. I've known you for a while. If you work during your treatment, you're not going to get better. And um, she was very matter of fact, which was important because that's what I understand is matter of fact. And um, so but once I came out of the my standard treatment, I was really depressed and I thought, wait a minute, I just beat cancer. How can I be depressed? And the thing about it is when you, when you go through a disease and you come out on the other end, no one gives you the room to be depressed, right? It's like, what do you have to be sad about? You just beat cancer. And I was so depressed that I wanted to die. I just didn't want to die from cancer. And then I I started thinking about it and I thought, am I the only one who feels this way? But I couldn't find resources where people were talking about this in an authentic way, but there were a few people I would talk to kind of on the side and they would, they would say, yeah, I, I, I was depressed too, or I'm depressed as well. And so I decided, you know, one of my gifts is that I am willing to kind of tell the unfettered truth about pretty much anything. So um, I knew I was not getting better. I wasn't getting a lot of help. um, And people didn't really understand, particularly healthy people didn't understand. And I got to a point, I had gone back to work. I got to a point where I was having so many complications. I had um, nine surgeries in in three years, um, nearly died a couple of times. And so I said, one, I have to make a choice for myself. And that meant to leave this very stressful job that I had, um, which was really tough because I'd spent my whole life building that career. Right. And then the other was... um, while I never asked um, why I had cancer, I always asked, what am I supposed to do with this? If I'm going through this experience, what am I supposed to do with it? And Vikram, I literally woke up one day and said, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to write a book Hmm. because I'm willing to talk about this. I'm willing to show the scars and the scariness and be vulnerable. And then I realized that not only did I need to talk about having cancer and what that can do to your, to your life and to your world, I needed to talk about what it was really like to be a black female climbing this, this climbing the corporate ladder, because I think people gloss over that. Um, a lot of times they gloss over it. And, um, 
And I just came to a point where I felt so strongly that you can reclaim your life. You can lead a life of purpose and passion and of authenticity. And you don't have to apologize for who you are. You know, I spent 30 years apologizing for being black and being female. How much sense does that make? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And it started a little bit with a blog though, right? I mean, you, it you did blog through your experience. So there's, there's this real time sort of oh, documentation boy. of your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts, really, really authentic sort of display of your emotions while on the journey. That's the part that I thought was really interesting to hear about. Yeah, it was, it was so crazy. And the, the, you know, a lot of people will, you know, like they get diagnosed with something or something traumatic happens and they immediately start, start a blog, you know, because they need to get it out. I started my blog after my cancer treatment, when I was depressed, because I thought that's when people really need to know what's going on. And I started it truthfully in service of other people because I consider myself a very strong person. And I thought, if I'm feeling this way, what about other people who aren't? And then I looked at the numbers of people whose spout women whose spouses leave them, women who try to commit, who try to kill themselves by suicide. I started looking at these things. And so I felt this need to write this blog, start this blog. But then I also knew that it wasn't going to matter that I wrote it unless I just told the unvarnished truth, you know, and that was hard. That was really hard. And I, I posted some really scary pictures, you know, when my husband was saying, do you really want to put those pictures on the web? And I, I say, yeah, people need to see this. Yeah, They need to understand. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what was the scariest part for you of this whole cancer experience? I mean, you, you tell a story and, and you say it, you deliver the story with grace and humor, <sighs> et cetera. Um, about uh, a, an explosion, I think is the phrase you oh, use. Oh, yeah, yeah. You also, you also deliver it by saying, you know, I had this really great dress on and that correct <laughs> <laughs> Right? You, you sort of, you brought humor to something that, I mean, I was on the verge of tears listening to the story. Yeah, I, and you know what's funny is I wrote that blog post the next morning while I was in the hospital waiting for surgery because I just needed to get it out. And so what it is- You might share, Charlene, for those who haven't yeah. read a little bit about so, that, what happened. Yeah, so I call this story the spontaneous combustion of my breast. And um, I was on a business trip. I completely healed. I had reconstruction the whole bit. I had completely healed. I woke up that morning for a, um, for a breakfast meeting, hugged a few people I hadn't seen for a year because I had been sick. And as I sat there at breakfast, I felt my breast swelling. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? And I didn't think about it, you know, you blow these things off, but then it, it was my left breast where I had cancer. And then eventually it started growing to the point where it was um, going up to my chest bone and underneath my arm. And I thought, okay, well, this is not normal. So I called my doc, I was in um, San Antonio. I called my doctor and uh, in Virginia, and he said, um, call an ambulance. You need to go to the hospital. And something, well, okay, I guess this is an emergency. So I call an ambulance, you know, and I call my husband and leave him a voicemail message. I don't know what's going on, but I need to go in this ambulance. I'll talk to you later. And I get in this ambulance and I'm one of these people that, you know, I could be falling apart and you wouldn't know it by looking at me. And I'm going to have the most inane conversation with you in the process. And so the MTs are kind of taking their time. And I said, you know, guys, I've got on this really expensive dress and I think we need to drive a little faster to the hospital. Very long story short, get to the hospital. I basically pass out. I'm going in and out. The, the nurse is saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. We can't afford for you to go to sleep. Um, and I, this dress. So here's the thing about this dress. This dress was hugely expensive. And I originally didn't want to buy it, but I, I hate buy. I, I hate not buying something that I want and then going back and it sold out, that really bothers me. So I bought this dress 
And, um, and it was, it's a thick fabric and it was really um, tight. I mean, it fit me like a glove and I love this dress and I had these great heels on. And so when I finally did come back, uh, come to in the, um, in the emergency room, the, uh, the nurse says, we need to get you out of this dress. And evidently while I was going in and out, I kept saying, don't cut off my dress. Don't cut off my dress. <laughs> right? You're dying and you're trying to save a dress. Anyway, the, um, I told the nurse, I said, you know, the dress zipped up in the front. And I said to the nurse, I said, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but I think if I sit up and unzip this dress, my breast is going to explode. And she looked at me like I was such an idiot. And she's like, that never happens. I was like, okay. So we set, so she sat me up, unzipped my dress, my entire breast exploded. I've never seen that much blood in my entire life. And everybody stopped for like a nanosecond. And there was blood all over the floor, all over the front of me, the back of me, you know, and all I'm thinking about is on my shoes. I'm thinking my dress, my dress. And, um, and I pass out just before I hear the doctor say, get ready for a blood transfusion. Right. So I have my blood front transfusion. I wake up. Um, I ask the woman to bag up my dress. My husband um, has flown in at this point and I had an implant in cause I had reconstruction and the implant came out um, when my breast exploded, but the implant was intact. And for some reason I said to the nurse, can I have that implant? Can I keep that? <laughs> right? It's going to make sense in a minute. And so I, um, so they give my husband the dress, he takes it to the dry cleaners and they're like, no, we will not touch this thing. It is a biohazard. The, um, and I'm like, Greg, please don't throw away my dress, <laughs> whatever you do. So he lovingly spent hours soaking that dress in a, um, in the bathtub, uh, to get all of the blood out and the clots, everything. He got it all out except for the tag in the back, um, that is still blood stained. And so that's kind of my, um, uh, you know, that's kind of my badge of honor. But the interesting thing about it is here's a dress I didn't want to buy. I did buy it. Turns out because that dress was so thick, it served as a compression garment. And that's why my breast didn't explode before I got to the hospital. And the doctor even told me if your breast had exploded at the hotel, you would have bled out and died. There would have been no way we could have gotten to you in time. Right. Moral to the story, buy that expensive dress. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it sounds terrifying, um, obviously, Charlene, but the, the grace and humor with which you deliver the story was appreciated because I can only imagine how terrifying it might have actually felt. Right. Oh, it, it was I mean, it, it still feels surreal. And I, and, and I think that's really when my, when my blog really started to take off because I realized that, okay, I was having some really scary stuff happen to me and, you know, and I had access to the best healthcare, you know, I ended up being treated at MD Anderson cancer center by one of only two doctors in the world who could have taken care of what I had. And, um, and go, going back just so that I don't leave this hanging, why I kept the, um, <laughs> the breast implant is yeah. when I went back to my doctor in Virginia, he said, um, he said, so your breast implant exploded and because that happens to people. Um, and I said, no, but I thought you might ask me that. So then I dug in my purse and I handed him the breast implant and he just looks at it and he says, I think this is the first time anybody has ever done that, <laughs> you know, but somewhere deep down, I knew that if he thought the breast implant exploded, yeah. I would never get a diagnosis of what was really happening to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. It actually lines up with some of the lessons I think is important in navigating uncertainty, right? Which is think for yourself, you provide right. data, your data, challenge the expert, a whole bunch of other things, but no, a, a stunning story. Yeah. Listen to your instinct, you know, even if it doesn't make sense at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, relating to that story, Charlie, mm -hmm. uh, you talk about collecting bracelets. Um, right? Yes. So yes. share a little bit about that, because one of the things that I often talk about in times of challenges mm -hmm. uh, 
is have some sort of anticipatory joy or success, sort of have something that you're mm -hmm. excited about that maybe helps you get through yes. uh, some of the challenging times because you know that there'll be something, you know, on a daily basis, it might be, all right, it's five o'clock, then let's crack open something to drink. <laughs> Right. Whatever it is, uh, but you know, the, the little things, but you mm -hmm. bracelets in this really positive way. I did. So, you know, I used to bribe myself with ice cream and then I got older and it became shoes. <laughs> right. Well, and I then still go, still go with the ice cream personally. <laughs> right. Right. And then I had cancer and I realized that I needed to, at some point I realized just how serious this was. You know, and I've had over the last two years, I've had three people, three friends die from the breast cancer that I had, where there's just went awry. And so I said, okay, this is really going to be a fight for my life. And with each step, I need to incentivize myself. And I had been admiring these bracelets for years and would always say, nobody in their right mind spends that kind of money on a bracelet. But I kind of calculated it and I looked at what my treatment was supposed to be. And I said, okay, if I get through each of these milestones, I'm going to buy this bracelet and then this bracelet and then this bracelet. And then at the end, I would have five and I'd buy kind of the big daddy of them at the end and it would be the celebratory moment. Uh, what I didn't know is because this was stretching out for so long, I would end up with 12 bracelets, right? And I wear these bracelets every single day. They don't come off. I do everything in them. Well, part of it is because most of them have to be screwed on, but it's been really interesting because people will see these bracelets on my wrist and they'll make judgments about them right? Like who in the world wears that many bracelets or that much jewelry or in one time, or who does she think she is, you know? And I wrote, wrote a blog post about it. And it's that, you know, my bracelets are not, it's not conspicuous consumption. It's conspicuous courage because every time I look at my wrist, I remember what I've been through right? And what I've overcome. And it gives me such a strong sense of just victory and purpose and meaning because they're not just adornment, right? They, they really mean something. And, um, you know, and, and it's been so interesting because I have been criticized so much to my face and not about these bracelets, right? And you know what? It's like, I don't give a damn. You have not walked in my shoes. And until you know what it feels like to die, don't judge me. Yeah. Right? Because I remember that every single day as though it was today. Yeah. What's interesting is it also, I think, just shows the importance of empathy, which is when you see something, you may not realize what that person has gone through that right. to where they are. And, you know, and that everyone has their own story, <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so judging is really, uh, you know, sort of not worthwhile, if you will, or right. perhaps, yeah. Yeah, it's the most selfish thing you can do, I think, is judge someone else. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Charlene, before we turn to some more of the corporate lessons, uh, of which yes, you have plenty. Um, <laughs> I do. I do. I want to just pause and ask you uh, two fun questions that okay. all my guests here uh, over the, the past year and a half or so, which is the first one is, do you have a favorite book? that you would recommend. Um, and maybe they're not the same thing. Maybe your favorite book is one that you find is your favorite, but you would recommend another book. Of right. course, I will be recommending this one, but you, <laughs> you don't have to do that. Uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, I'm sort of curious, uh, any books that you particularly like or would recommend? Yeah. So like everyone, you know, we read a ton of business books, right? We always want to stay in current events and what's going on. I'm reading a book by someone I recently met, um, Stuart Goldstein, um, and his book is called Mo Fields and um, fabulous book. I am just really enjoying it. It's nonfiction and Stuart's a, a beautiful writer. And his book, I just started it because I just finished your book. Think for yourself. Um, but you know, my favorite book, and this is going to sound so crazy, is, um, well, one, I'll read anything by Joel Osteen. Um, okay. But 
my favorite book and the book I gift to other people the most is called The Potbelly Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. Hmm. Yep. It's a, it's a children's book, yep. right? And do you know the book? Art. The stars, the stars up on bars. You tell yes. the story. Tell the story because yes. I so so I I discovered this book when my children were small and I would read them to to read the story to them and it's about this group of people called the potbelly sneeches and they have stars on their stomachs and they think that they are the supreme beings you right they are the upper echelon and they look down on the um, potbelly sneeches that don't have stars on them on their stomachs. Then um, Mr. McBean comes in. He has this machine that's called the star off star on machine. So when he comes, all the potbelly sneeches that don't have stars go through his machine and they have stars. So all of a sudden the true star bellied sneeches can't tell themselves a, a, apart from the foe, I guess, potbelly sneeches. And so they go into Mr. McBean's machine and have their stars taken off. And so there just goes back and forth with this, you know, stars on, stars off, stars on, stars off, that after a while, they can't tell the difference. And so they're forced to just see and relate and get to know one another as though they're all the same, right? And it is just this simple Dr. Seuss story that says so much, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, and as I was climbing through my career being, you know, the only, the only black woman, the only um, black person, the only female, you know, one thing I, all, I always remember that story in the back of my head. And I always remember that, you know, I don't care if you make $11 billion a year, or you make $11,000 a year, you still put your pants on one leg at a time, yep. right? And, and that story just brings that all home to me. And I saw what, because my children are biracial, I thought it was important that they understood um, race. I wish I had taught them more about racism rather than race, but, um, but that story was very helpful. And I, I give gift that book to more people than any other book. Interesting. Well, I will make sure yeah. I uh, revisit it. It's been years since I read it, but I do remember the stars part. Right, so. right. Well, let me send it to you if you don't have it. I will, it will be my honor to send it to you. Thanks, Charlene. Um, so how about a favorite movie? Um, again, so I think I, I mentioned this to you before of all these uh, interviews I've had with super impressive individuals from all walks of life. The survey from the listeners uh, and uh, and what and the audience generally has been. We love the book and movie and miniseries recommendations. <laughs> so it's actually turned into a really fun little common thing that. So yeah. you, your favorite movie or movie you'd recommend? To serve with love. To serve with love. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt, one because Sydney Poitier is just so incredibly handsome. Um, but two, I just think that, um, that was my story when I met my husband and we decided to get married, but, you know, 30 years had gone by between that movie and when my husband and I got married. So I, I really love, there's, there's so many layers to that story that I just, I, I just love it. And, um, you know, and, and I have to tell you that there are very few rom-coms that have ever been written that I don't love. Yep. Right. And it's like every Christmas I watch Love Actually, I watch The Holiday and I watch This Christmas. Right. Just have to watch those. You know, and they're so, you know, it's a genre yeah. that works. <laughs> right. You know, look, 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 I live a life that doesn't always have a happy ending. I want my movies to have happy endings. You know, I, I, I do love documentaries and learning and all of those things, but if it's pure pleasure, it's going to be something that has a happy ending. Perfect. Good. <laughs> well, that's, th thank you, Shirley, for sharing those. Um, so let's turn to some of the wonderful businessy lessons that you sure. share here. Um, you know, one of them that I think is pretty interesting um, is a lot of times you're told, put your head down, uh, just work. Don't worry about it. Your accomplishments will get noticed. 
you don't really think that's the way to go for some people that they should actually yeah. make sure you tell someone when you've done something right. Yeah. You know, I think that piece of advice is a load of crap. If you're not the norm, you know, if you're not the traditional, you know, white male fit into the establishment, you put your head down, you work hard and you're forgotten period. And I've seen it happen in my own career. I've seen it happen to other people. And I'm a firm believer that if you don't make your accomplishments, your value known, then who is going to make them known? How are they going to be known? Particularly if you're working against some kind of a bias, right? I, I have this lecture series called Lessons from Being Invisible. And that's where a lot of the lessons in the book come from, because so often, and you'll hear people will tell you this, Black women are invisible in the workplace. And we're often trotted out when it's convenient. And then you're put back in the closet, so to speak, when it's less convenient. So, you know, my career has been in communications and marketing and issues and all of those things. So, I really encourage people to kind of apply those lessons to their own career. You know, when it comes to branding, as an example, the first thing we say to companies is tell your story or else someone's going to tell it for you and it's not going to be the way you want it. Sure. I think it's the same way with your career. Tell your story, who you are and your value. And don't ever take that for granted because you will be forgotten. It's not a, you might be forgotten. It's like, you will be forgotten. And if you go into your career, you put your head down, you work your tail off, someone's going to notice you and pluck you out of, out of obscurity. You're living in a movie that doesn't even exist, actually. Yeah. What's interesting, Charlie, you talk about the difference between champions and sponsors mm -hmm. also. So help articulate what you mean by that. So yeah, sure, I, that I, I thought that was a really critical and useful way. You know, I, I work with a whole bunch of students that are, you know, graduating from Harvard and, you know, mm -hmm. I've been teaching now for 14 years. So I have a lot of students that have called even years after, hey, career advice, what do I do? What do I do? Mm -hmm. Et cetera. Um, you know, and I always say, find out, choose who you work with rather than what you're doing or where you're working because that mentoring relationship, the, the sponsorship, and mm -hmm. I've founded these words that you do a good job of separating sponsor, champion, mentor, et cetera. Right. So, so help right. us share with us what, what you mean by that. Sure. So, you know, so often we are looking for mentors. Everybody says, find a mentor. We're, well, here's the thing, it, especially if your mentor is within your company, Mentors are designed to help you acclimate to the company, right? To make sure you know where the landmines are, et cetera, to help you assimilate, quite frankly, into the company. The, um, you know, a sponsor takes someone who is um, typically a high potential and pretty much does the same thing just at a much higher level, <clears throat> excuse me, a champion is the person who is going to be your advocate. They're not trying to turn you into anyone else, but they're the ones that make sure that your name comes up when, you're, when <clears throat> the discussions are taking place, when the executives are in a room that you're not invited into. A champion is the one who makes sure you aren't forgotten. Right. And, um, you know, and I think that's really important. And, and one thing I learned in my career, because early on, you know, you're looking, you, you're, you want to break the glass ceiling. And what's important to you is you want to get that seat at the table. Right. But getting that seat at the table is not as important as being at that table and knowing that the other people there are comfortable with you in their space. Yeah. Yeah, you, you right. talk about you talk about it in fit versus inclusion versus belonging. Sure, mm -hmm. I think this is a really yeah. good distinction and worth you know spending a moment to yeah. talk about because sure. I think it's really critical. Yeah, so you know a lot of organizations talk about fit, right? We want to make sure our executives fit. Now, I do have to say that you know fit matters, but it doesn't have to mean that one size fits all. There are organizations that want people to be different um, and, they, and they will value that difference. 
Um, there are many, many more organizations who want everyone to be exactly the way they are. Um, they want them to be part of that homogeneous group. And you can, if you're not careful, you can spend an entire career, meaning decades, constantly molding yourself to fit into what this they, you know, the proverbial they say that you have to be, you know, and sometimes it's worth it. I've been in situations where I didn't fit, which is most situations, quite frankly. And, um, and I stayed because I knew that I was plowing the way for people who came behind me, but there were also times when it was so untenable that I had the title, I had the position, but I didn't have the respect. I didn't have the value. I didn't belong. And I was reminded every day that I didn't belong. And when that happens, you have to leave, period. Yeah. You just have to say, this is more about them than it is about me. And they're never going to see my value. And if I stay here, I'm going to believe, I'm going to begin to believe that I don't have value. You know, and one thing that I say in my book that, um, that I think is really important is that, you know, it's choice, not chance that changes your life. And so when you're in those situations and, um, you know, and they can rip you apart internally because we're all often looking for that external validation um, but when you're in those situations, you really have to remember that you have a choice and that there are organizations out there that will value you because the only thing worse to me than having it, than, than getting that seat at the table, which sounds like, ah, oh, the brass ring is when you've got that seat at the table and nobody's listening to you, nobody values you and you don't belong. Yeah. Let's flip it around for a second. Sure. What advice would you give to organizations or boards or teams saying, mm -hmm. how do you create an environment where people of different backgrounds, mm -hmm. perspectives, views, et cetera, actually feel like they belong, not just are included? Well, you know, this is hard work. That's the one thing I think people have to understand. This is hard work. And this is also around the time when I would tell um, executives that you should probably hire me. <laughs> and let me, let me explain that though, the, uh, because this is not a shameless self-promotion. But one of the things that I realized when I decided to start an executive coaching business is that often CEOs and C-suite executives do not know how to nurture their high potential minority or underrepresented talent. On the same side, on the other side of that, that talent all, often doesn't know how to navigate the C-suite. And I've been in both. So I have this unique perspective. And what I think with, with CEOs, which you, you really, and C-suite executives, is you have to understand representation is not the same as inclusion and belonging and value. Right. And I see so many, I've seen this in companies that I've worked in and without, that so many organizations spend a lot of money bringing Black talent, minority talent into their organizations. They invest in them the same way they invest in everyone else, which is the first mistake. And then in two years, they, they, the talent leaves because they never felt comfortable. They never felt like they belonged. And the, um, the company suffers because of it, you know, because there's a cost when, you're, when your minority employees leave, your high potential talent. And there's also a reputation cost because we all talk to one another and say, hey, should I go work there? Well, no, maybe not. So the, the thing is, I'm always amazed when it comes to um, companies who are trying to figure out what to do about diversity, right? And so, but it's like eight white guys in a room saying, what should we do about diversity? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I have this, this um, analogy that I use. I used to talk to my former chairman about it. I said, you know, we're trying to get our engineers to, who are really good engineers to do this. And that's not what they do, but I'm sure, you know, if you have a dog, 
and you need that dog to climb a tree, I'm sure if you spent six months to a year, you could teach that dog to climb a tree. But why wouldn't you just get a squirrel? Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so it's the same thing with diversity. It's if you're trying to figure out, you know, how to make your organization work with a diverse group of people, talk to your diverse group of people and ask them what they need and recognize that they're not a monolith. You know, the other thing that companies do is now, you know, everybody wants to have their a chief diversity officer. And more often than not, your chief diversity officer is a minority. Okay. I get it. But you've just given the people who don't have a voice, right? You have made this person the top of the diversity food chain when they don't have a voice. So what change is really going to happen, right? And, and I know, but people say, companies say, well, I'll get criticized if I put someone white in, in charge of diversity. And so I'm really a huge proponent of having um, co-diversity leads, right? Because you've got to have someone who has the ear of the leadership of the CEO and your C-suite has to take a look inside you know, we've been, we've been working on diversity and inclusion, at least since I started my career 33 years ago, right? And the problem's not solved. So it's not, to me, it's not DE&I is not the issue. Equity and justice is the issue. So what are you doing to look at equity, justice, and workplace racism in your organization? And we know that structural racism exists externally, So it is impossible for it to not have bled into our organizations, you know, and, and I guess the last thing I'll say about this, because I know I'm just going on and on is that people will say, you know, people will say, oh my gosh, we have to fix the system, right? We have to fix the system. Well, here's the deal. The system is not broken. The system works exactly as it was intended to advantage one group of people and disadvantage another group of people. So fixing the system is not the, is, is not the solution. Tearing down the system and rebuilding it based on a foundation of equity and justice, that is the answer. Because when you're looking at equity, you're not applying the same thing to everybody, mm-hmm. right? And, I th- and if you have a foundation of equity and justice, then everybody has an opportunity, mm-hmm. right? And there's no room for bias to seep in. Right. And okay. I said, I wasn't going to say anything else, but I will, I do have to say that so many organizations pride themselves on being a meritocracy, which, you know, really actually is built on subjective thinking, not objective thinking. So if meritocracy and diversity is a marriage made in hell. So if you have an organization and you're a CEO and you find yourself using the M word, you really need to look at your organization and your systems and your structures. Yeah, it's interesting, Charlie. I mean, I've taught a class where I've used Michael Young's book. Michael Young is the mm-hmm. British philosopher, scholar who back in, I think it was the 50s, coined the term meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And I'm right now reading a book called The Tyranny of Merit. Uh, ah, mm-hmm. I think as you dig deeper into this, this logic of meritocracy with credentialism, with sort of economic inequality that exists mm-hmm. combined with a little bit of racism and suddenly meritocracy is the whitewashing, if you will, to sort of wash, well, no, it's a meritocracy. Those who rose must've been better. Like, it, right. it's, and it makes those who don't rise feel somehow that it was their fault. Exactly. Which has it may have just been different opportunity sets. It may have been a whole bunch right. of other. Right. So right. meritocracy is this this sort of really perfect possible image that everyone wants to aspire to, and yet it really has a quite dark side to the idea yeah. of meritocracy. Yeah, it's the term that white men created to make themselves feel better. <laughs> when it was well, when it was first coined by Michael Young, again, this book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, uh, I think it's nineteen fifty eight or fifty mm-hmm. something. Uh, it wasn't a positive. <laughs> right, right. It's exactly. articulated how it goes wrong. Right. Uh, and so it's a really interesting dynamic. Anyway, I'm going to just uh, maybe introduce a little bit of humor after that. Um, so, 
you you said the proverbial they reminds me of that Seinfeld episode. I think there was a point where I don't know if you watched Seinfeld. But I did. Kramer, George. Anyway, Kramer uh, comes in. And he says, you know, we should go take it, and they they'll just uh, take care of it. And Jerry Seinfeld says, <laughs> you don't know who they is, do you? Right. And he's like, and Kramer looks at the camera. He's like, no, but. But they do. Right. right. I do remember that episode, actually. Which I thought it was just perfect given the proverbial they. they right. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, interesting. Let's come back to a couple other points I wanted to sure. just dig into, Shirley, before we wrap up here. Um, you say there's no such thing as work life balance. Uh, yeah, it doesn't what exist. What do you mean? No. So just the whole idea, right? I mean, work-life balance is, um, you know, a great thing to strive for, but it's just an exercise in futility because there's no such thing because it is not possible for your entire life to be in balance all at one time. I think so. I tend to say work-life harmony, but what I really believe is just carve out the right times for what needs you in your life when it needs you. And when you have a conflict, rely on your values and what really matters to you. You know, and, and you know, I spent years trying to achieve this work-life balance, right? Getting up early, cutting my kids' sandwiches into shapes because the mommy mafia cut their sandwich, their kids' sandwiches into shapes. <laughs> you know? So I better explain the mommy mafia. So, you know, I, I live in suburbia. I have a wonderful neighborhood. And um, when my kids were um, little and I, I, we hadn't, we were fortunate enough to have a nanny and I'd be taking off to work and I'd drive around the corner where the mothers were standing at the bus stop to put their kids on the bus and they were all in their cute little track suits and their ponytails and their cups of coffee and their Starbucks and they're just judging you and they're just shaking their head like oh she has to go to work (laughs) you know not she chooses to go to work and so um you know I have a story in the book of how I paid my daughter not to be a brownie because I did not want to be judged anymore by the mommy mafia. So what I tell people is, you know, instead of trying to find this ideal of what is supposed to be work-life balance, find what works for you and your family, commit to it, don't apologize for it, you know, and just move on with your life. You know, my kids had a great upbringing because they had happy parents, right? If for me, If I had stayed at home, having been raised by a single mother who was single because she escaped an abusive marriage, right? I would not have been a happy mother. I was raised with the understanding that as a female, I always had to know that I go home every day because I want to, not because I I don't have a choice, right? So for me, being a working mother, if you let that guilt get to you, it can just eat you alive. And there's no reason to feel guilty. Just make your decisions and own your decisions. And the only people you have to explain it to and make sure are okay with it is your family. Yeah. You know, don't let the outside judgment come in. And I did stop cutting my sandwich, my kids' sandwiches into shapes. That 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 stuff took a long time. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I know we have, I think we may still have in our kitchen uh, in one of the drawers, a dinosaur shaped sandwich cutter. <laughs> right, right. Because you, we you haven't used not. it. Yeah. It you, there at one point because there was a competitive dynamic. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and at one point we had, because like I live in crazy suburbia in the DC area. Um, my youngest daughter, when she turned two, we had her birthday party and you know, the neighborhood kids were invited and the mommy and mafia parents come with them. We had ponies in our backyard for this birthday party, like real live ponies yep. for kids to take a ride around. And I'm sitting back, you know, I grew up a poor child in the very unwelcome part of Oakland, California. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking, I've got ponies at a two-year-old's birthday party enough is enough. And that's when I drew the line. I said, no, this is ridiculous, right? I'm just not living this life. 
it's interesting because I'm trying to find it in the book. Charlie. There's this, I scribbled uh, on this particular page because I thought this quote, and I think you said it was from your pastor, uh, but I found it. He said <laughs> something to the effect of, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Exactly. I love that in there. Right. You know, it's like, and, so uh, often. So right. Often, right? you know, yeah. and we're on this kind of this, I call it the, and I think I say this in the book too, it's this proving treadmill, right? We're on this treadmill because we're trying to prove something. We're trying to make people like us. And I tell people all the time, I tell my kids this, I say, why are you trying to get everybody to like you when you don't even like everybody? Yeah. Right. I mean, some people are just never going to be at peace with you. And that's also a career lesson because I talk about not everybody's invested in your success and don't spend 80% of your time on that 20%. Spend your 80% of your time on, spend your time on the people who are going to lift you up, who are going to help you, who are going to show you how to feel good about yourself. Yep. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because you also have in the same section with the lessons learned. <laughs> so I'm, I'm you really read that. this book. <laughs> notes. Outsource everything. Yes. Yes. Meaning focus on what you think is important, right? Which exactly. Anything that's fringe, anything that's not mm-hmm. important, just outsource. Just, you know, doesn't make sense to do your laundry. Take it to a laundromat or someone who right. can do that. Right? So is that what you mean? Or is it something bigger than that? No, that, that really is what I mean. It's do what you need to do to make your life work, right? And so particularly, you know, when your kids are younger, they need you more for, for little things, but then there are things, you know, you've worked all week and you want to go do something for yourself. Um, but then the lawn needs to get mowed or this needs to happen or that needs to happen. And so you're in this constant battle and struggle with yourself, with your spouse, with your family, and nobody's happy. So figure out, it's like at work, right? At work, you figure out what you have to delegate, right? And at home, it's the same thing, right? Figure out what you need to delegate that makes sense. And sometimes, you know, if you're fortunate enough, that means that you can have somebody take care of your lawn or you can have a housekeeper, but you know what? You can also hire the teenager down the street who's looking for that extra 20 bucks a week to mow your lawn, right? You've got the teenager who will babysit for your kids for three hours on a Saturday, not a Saturday night, because they usually have social lives, but on a Saturday day um, so that you can go do things. But, you know, there are ways to make things happen, but we get so stuck in what we think we're supposed to do that we don't think bigger about how do we make this work? Yeah. Right. I'm going to end it with the last tidbit, which I think is, which I loved, which is you say you still have a nanny. Is that still the case? (laughs) (laughs) Because I know this book, this book was written earlier this year, Charlie. So it, it, you had it was. So, and you also did say that you have a 27-year-old and 25-year-old. So who don't live at home. I'm kind of wondering what the nanny's doing. Right. right. So, so we don't have the nanny anymore. Oh, okay. But um, we love her to death. She stayed with us um, for five years after the kids were gone. Right. And she still came into the house every day. And she helped run my life, quite frankly. So we promoted her to house manager because it made it all made us all feel better um, by that. And um, we love her. And uh, she, uh, her, uh, one of her parents died. She came into money. She and her husband opened a restaurant, um, which we love to go to and support. But I can guarantee you, if she had not opened the restaurant she would still be our nanny. Um, <laughs> and because we loved her, she loved us. Yeah. We take uh, great care of each other. And we would talk about her being around when, so that when our kids had kids that she could be their nanny too. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know? Well, you know what, you know what I love. And the reason I thought that really a, a nice way to end our conversation today, Charlene, is it sounds like, and I think you really do believe it because you live it, that it's really about relationships and being authentic in your relationships and having the sense of meaning um, with every interaction you have, right? As opposed Absolutely. to 
doing what's expected or they want mm -hmm. me to, or I'm supposed to, or society thinks I should, or this is way, the way it's supposed to be. So right. um, I, I think that's ultimately the message I took from your book and from our conversations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And for everybody listening, you know, if there's, if you take nothing else away from this beautiful conversation that you've enabled me to have with you, Vikram, is you are enough. Yep. So many of us walk around thinking that we don't measure up. Yep. Right. There we go. So Charlene, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for the continued friendship and conversations. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Yes, so, me you. too. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 